Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. My name is Kyle Cox, and I'm excited to be here. Uh, a little bit about me. I, uh, I graduated from A&M in 2013. Yes! See, I've done that so many times, and so many people don't whoop. That was great. And I came on staff right after that as an intern or a fellow, if you're familiar with our fellows program, as Zach was saying earlier this morning, and have since come on staff full time. Um, and this is a really exciting opportunity for me for a couple of reasons. Uh, first being, gosh, like eight years ago when I came to A&M, this room, I walked into this church not knowing what it was and heard the first sermon in College Station when I came as, um, when I came my first year. And so it's such a honor to be able to preach to you this morning at this church that developed me throughout college and then uh, developed me in the fellows program. And so I just want you to know I am so excited to be here. Also, my voice is hoarse. So not only do I look 10 years younger than, or 10 years younger than I am, but now I will sound also 10 younger than I am. So just be ready for that. Um, also, this year is a pretty big year for me for a couple of reasons. First being, I got married this year. Uh, this is my wife, Chamilla Panilla. Um, thank you. Yes. Or it was Chamilla Panilla. It went from Chamilla Panilla, awesome name, to Chamilla Cox, womp womp. Um, but Chamilla and I, we will be leaving overseas two months from today. We will be going overseas through crew to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to students in Greece. So we are very excited about that. It's very bittersweet. We're excited to be over there. But of course, we're going to miss this church that um, has played a big role in our lives. In fact, this is where we met. So, uh, so we're going to miss it, but we are very excited for uh, this next step in our lives. Um, so we'll jump right in. When I was in high school, I played six-man football. Any six-man football people out here? Okay, one. All right, so me and that guy, we played six-man football. And my six-man team was the worst team in the worst district. And on the worst team in the worst district, I was the worst player on the worst team in the worst district. And I remember my freshman year, my coach, he would always say, sacrifice your body for the team. Sacrifice your body for the team. And I was always like, nah, I don't really want to do that. And so by the end of my freshman year, my assistant coach, he comes up to me and he says, Kyle, let's address the reality. Excuse me. Sure, you're weak. Slow, unathletic, short. And I thought, okay, you got to get to the point here. And he says, but if you go to every game, if you go to every uh, practice, every workout, when you are a senior, you will be a team captain and you will take this team to glory. So you know what I did? I went to every game. I went to every workout. I went to every practice. And when I was a senior, I was a captain. However, I was just as bad, if not worse than I was my freshman year. And my brother, man, people called my, I'm a twin, and people called my brother Kyle 2.0. He was bigger than me, stronger than me. Women liked him more. In fact, girls would come up to me, and they would say things like, could you introduce us to your brother? And I'd be like, sure. And uh, that was, that was me and my brother. In fact, if I could compare us to any celebrity brother, it would be the Hensworth brothers. So the Hensworth brothers, you have Chris Hensworth right there. Chris plays the part of Thor in the Marvel movies. People argue that Chris is the biggest celebrity out of the two. They argue that he's the better looking out of the two. He's the more popular out of the two. And I know what you're thinking. Are you about to compare yourself to Liam? No. I'm saying I'm like the third Hensworth brother (laughs) that no one knew about until now. 
So that was me and my brother. He was the popular, better football player out of the two. All that to say is my football career was terrible. Career, like I got paid for it. My football time in high school was terrible. And my coach, just to add insult to injury, he would come up to me and he would say, Kyle, you have some of the biggest heart. And to hear that as a high school student is to like hear a girl say she likes you just as a friend. That is what I got as a high school football player. I was terrible, just horrible. But there was one opportunity, you see, when we were winning by a landslide, I would get to play. And so I went in at one point when we were winning by like, I don't know, 50 points or something. And during that moment, there was a fumble on the play and I had the opportunity to pick up the ball and run it for a touchdown. But here's the problem. I was in desperate need for help. There was nothing I could appeal to in myself to make this touchdown. I desperately needed my team. And so as I was running, it was awesome. It was like we were running in slow motion. One guy got to my right and the other to my left. And we like nodded to one another. And it was was like in a movie. And they would like push people out of my way. And I ended up making the touchdown. I will say there was a flag on the play, so it didn't count. But however, (laughs) the point remains the same. I was in desperate need for help by my team to make the touchdown. Excuse me, my voice is crazy. Uh, So why do I say that? I say that because we this morning are looking at a confession of a man who was in desperate need for help. We're in Psalm 51 this morning. And this psalm is a response to one of the biggest failures in all of scripture. In fact, in this psalm, what we find, what David recognizes is that there is nothing he could appeal to in himself to remove the weight and penalty of his sin. But he is in desperate need of help from someone else. As I was reading this psalm, to me, this psalm became one of the most humbling, encouraging, and convicting chapters in all of Scripture. In fact, Charles Spurgeon says of this particular psalm, Such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion. But commented on, where is he who, having attempted it, can do other than blush at its defeat? So in light of the weight of the content in this psalm, my hope this morning is that we would recognize our need for help. And that this morning we would look at this song with honest, reverent, transparent reflection. And that the Lord would reveal sin that we are holding onto in our lives. But before we jump into this psalm, I think it's important for us to understand the context behind it which is found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 12. And we don't have time to read it, so we won't, but I will summarize it real quick. It starts in verse 1. It says, In the spring, when all the kings were out to war, David sent his men to fight, and David stayed in Jerusalem. So right off the bat, David is isolating himself from the fight. David is in isolation. It then says, He arose in the evening from his sleep. So he literally slept all night, he slept all morning, he slept all afternoon, and finally in the evening he thought, well, I haven't seen the light of day, so I guess I should go do that. And so as he's walking outside, he sees a woman bathing. And in this moment, David has an opportunity. He can stop and stare, or he can continue walking. And in this moment, David forgot about the God who saved him from Saul. He forgot about the God who saved him from Goliath. David's integrity was challenged, and David plunged into sin. What happens next is David got curious. He starts asking, who is this woman? And he's told that this is Bathsheba, the wife to Uriah. 
And so you can imagine the conflict that's going on in David's head. He's thinking, I'm a man of God. I know this is wrong. I know this is sin. But David's king and he gets what he wants. And so David sleeps with Bathsheba. What happens next is in David's mind, you can imagine that conflict further. He's thinking, okay, it was only one time. I'm not going to do it again. It was once. But then he finds out Bathsheba is pregnant with his child. So now in order for David to cover his sin, David must manipulate the situation. So David, what he does is he brings Uriah off the battlefield. He tells Uriah, hey, stay the night with your wife. But Uriah was an honorable honorable man. He was a godly man. And so Uriah, in good conscience, felt he could not stay the night with his wife while his brothers and his friends were dying on the battlefield. So he goes back to war. Now David must manipulate the situation even further. And so what David does is he second-handedly kills Uriah by placing Uriah on the front lines of battle, assuring Uriah's death. Shortly after, David marries Bathsheba, and now everyone thinks that it's David's child in marriage. David's sin is hidden. He believes he has concealed it. He believes he is safe. And the last verse in chapter 11 says, what David had done was evil in the Lord's eyes. So chapter 12 enters the prophet Nathan. And Nathan in Hebrew means a gift from God. And a gift from God to David, he was indeed. So Nathan, he tells the story to David of a poor man who had one small little lamb. And this small little lamb was a part of this poor man's family. It was family to this poor man. He raised this lamb. He loved this lamb. And then there was this rich man who had many flocks of sheep. And despite this rich man having many flocks of sheep, this rich man took this little lamb from this poor man. And David, he was a shepherd, so he kind of had a weird love for sheep. And so David is really angry by the story. And so David tells Nathan, hey, bring that man here and we will kill him. And Nathan responds with one of the biggest spiritual slaps in the face in all of scripture and says, David, you are that man. And so David's sin is discovered. It is not hidden anymore. David is broken and he weeps and he confesses and he owns up his sin before God. And in response to his sin, he writes this psalm. Starting in verse 1, Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and I have done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be made clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Make me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin, and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. We're going to stop there for right now. So in light of this psalm, in light of David's brokenness in writing this psalm, there are four truths that I want to pull out and elaborate and identify. Truth number one, all sin is destructive. All sin is destructive. So the literal translation of sin in scripture means to miss the mark. 
all sin misses the mark. All sin falls short by which the standard by which God would have us live. So for there, excuse me. Now there are different consequences on earth for different sin. For example, murder will have a greater consequence on earth than lying will. If I could illustrate this further, think if you're driving 60 miles over the speed limit, more than likely you're going to hurt someone and yourself. However, if you're driving five miles over the speed limit, you may not hurt anyone, but nevertheless, both are breaking the law. So if God's standard is here, murder may be here, lying may be here, but both fall under the standard by which we are to live. Now, though there are different earthly consequences here on earth, Scripture tells us that all sin leads to the same result, which is death. Spiritual separation from the Father. Death. All sin is punishable by death. And the problem is we have all sinned. Now, David, he repeats different terminology to describe his sin. In verse 1, he says, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me away from my iniquity. Verse 3, my sin is ever before me. Verse 5, I have been brought forth from iniquity. So you see, sin, iniquity, transgression, evil, all these words combine together to illustrate the seriousness of what David had done. And transgression literally means to rebel against one's law. So all sin defies God. Our sin is offensive to God. In verse 4, he says, you and you alone I have sinned. Now, obviously David had sinned against Bathsheba. Obviously David had sinned against Uriah. But the greatest consequence for David's sin is that he has defied God. Our sin is offensive. But not only is our sin offensive, it is comprehensive. He says, in sin my mother conceived me. He said, I've been a sinner since I was an embryo. I was born with an inclination in a heart that is prone to defy God. If you put something in front of me that God wants me to do or something that is sinful, my natural instinct will be to choose the sin. I saw this this morning in my own life. I was in one of our pastor's office studying actually this part of this text. And then I saw a Starbucks gift card and my first thought was, I should take that gift card. I should totally take that gift card. I need Starbucks right now. And I thought, how am I studying this right now and thinking, yeah, I should steal that gift card. It's because my natural inclination is to sin. My instinct is to sin. Sin is offensive and is comprehensive. And number three, it is pervasive. Verse three, he says, my sin is always before me. It's with me all the time. Even in my best deeds, on my best days, when what I am doing would seem to be noble, I do those things for selfish reasons. My most Christ-like actions can harbor some of the most prideful thoughts. I am a sinner through and through. And what's crazy is sin, it can start so subtly. It can start oh so very slowly. For David, it started with just a walk outside, just a glance across the roof. And because of one lustful look, it led to adultery, which led to murder. And if you read the text further, it led to the death of a child. Just because of one look. Sin takes arms so slowly, so subtly, and yet it devastates so painfully. Sin is destructive. It is always destructive. And I think for some of us in the room, there is sin that we view as insignificant. We can hide it. We can conceal it. It's insignificant. 
However, if we believe that, we are deceiving ourselves. Why? Because sin is destructive because it ultimately defies the one we were made to love. We were made to find joy in the Father. We were made to find satisfaction in our Father. And sin, what it does is it breaks the connection, that joy we have with the Father. Sin robs us of our joy. It steals our satisfaction. And so even if no one knows about our sin, we are deceiving ourselves if we view it as insignificant because it will rob us of our joy because it is defiance against God. And when sin hurts our connection with God, slowly but surely, it will negatively affect the relationships around us. What we perceive as small is infinitely serious to God and it is destructive. C.S. Lewis illustrates this well in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own sin less and less. A moderately bad man knows he is not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he is all right. This is common sense, really. You understand sleep when you are awake not while you are sleeping. You can see mistakes in arithmetic when your mind is working properly. You can understand the nature of drunkenness when you are sober, not when you are drunk. Good people know about both good and evil. Bad people do not know about either. We understand our sin for what it is. Excuse me. We understand our own sin when we recognize it for what it is. Defiance against God. And when we start to see sin as insignificant, what happens is we lose the sobriety to see it as black and white and we suddenly start to see it as gray. You know when you become numb to sin, it's when we stop taking it seriously. It's when we take it lightly. Future devastation can be caused by one look, by one thought, by one action. I think about Genesis chapter 3. What did Adam and Eve do? They ate a piece of fruit. And to me, that's pretty insignificant. In my mind, I think that sin is so insignificant. But what did that one sin do? It condemned all humanity. World war, world wars, murder, trafficking, all because of one sin that I can falsely believe is insignificant. Moses struck a rock and he couldn't enter the promised land. Ananias and Sapphira lied and they were murdered. Cain was jealous of Abel and this led to murder. All sin is destructive and it is serious. Sin robs us of our joy. Now, I think it is important for us to feel the weight of truth number one, that sin is destructive, so we can feel the incredible wonder and the incredible relief of truth number two, that despite our defiance against God, God is gracious. God is gracious. Just as David used different words to describe his sin, he does the same thing to describe God's grace. He says, have mercy on me. Your steadfast love abounds. Your abundant mercy abounds. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity. Cleanse me. I want us to think about the request David is asking. David is asking God, who he has defied against, who he has offended, who he has sinned against, to look at him as though he had never done that. He is asking God to look at him as though he had never sinned against him. That's a pretty big request. It's a big request, especially if you take in light that David had committed two sins by which the law of Moses would require death. 
You see, David has nothing to appeal to in himself for the forgiveness of his sin. So what is he appealing to? He's appealing to God's grace. He's appealing to God's grace. You see, the language in this passage, it is purifying and it is cleansing. You see, grace comes at a very significant cost. Cleansing is costly and it always involves sacrifice. Always. So in verse 7, he says, purify me with hyssop. And at first I didn't really know what that meant, so I just skipped it, which you just never do with scripture. Um, But as I kept reading it and as I discovered what I meant, I realized how crucial it was to the text. You see, hyssop, if you were unclean, you would go to a priest to become clean. And hyssop was a small plant that the priest would use to spread over the blood of a sacrifice or an offering. In fact, in Exodus chapter 12, hyssop was the plant that was used to spread the blood over the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass through. So hyssop was a plant that was used in cleansing ceremonies. So when David is referring to hyssop, what he is saying is, I need myself completely cleansed. And what will cleanse me is nothing of myself, but only at the cost of sacrifice. You see what David did, the penalty was death. And if David expects this penalty of death to be removed from him, then that penalty must be paid by something or someone other than David. He is asking God for his grace. And it, <clears throat> he, excuse me, he is asking God for his grace. And that grace is made possible by satisfying the wrath of God and the penalty of David's sin on something else, someone else, something other than David. Now, Here is the implication for us today. God looked at the world and he saw people who are enemies of him. People who had sinned against him. People who were in defiance against him. But God's grace was shown through the life of Jesus Christ. Who came to earth as fully God and fully man. In Jesus, he lived a perfect life. And Jesus saw us past, present, and future. He saw our sin and he recognized that our penalty was death. But Jesus in his great compassion willingly was murdered on the cross, taking the penalty of our sin. He was the ultimate and perfect sacrifice for our sin. The shedding of his blood to make us white as snow. So he saw our penalty and he said, I know what you've done. I know the sin that you have done, but I want to take your penalty. I want to take your place. And so three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, effectively conquering and defeating sin once and for all. And now whoever believes in Jesus as their savior will be reconciled with the father, will be made right, will be made whiter than snow. And it will be as though you have never sinned. As it says in Hebrews chapter 10, 11 through 12, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time and time again the same sacrifices. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. This is the good news for us, that the penalty of our sin was paid by Jesus on the cross in the shedding of his blood as the perfect sacrifice in our place. His death satisfied the wrath of God. Now, no matter what sin we have done in the past, no matter what sin we are struggling with now, and no matter what sin we will do in the future, we are forgiven and we are made clean and we are made right through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And so my hope this morning is that if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, my hope is that you would come to know Jesus as your Savior and you would know that you are loved by Jesus who willingly took the penalty of our sin. My hope is that you would know the Father who moved heaven and earth to have a relationship with us. This is the wonder of God and this is the love of Jesus that he would say, I will make a way for you by taking the place of your sin. God's grace is greater than our sin. David appealed to sacrifice and we appeal to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you become a Christian, there is nothing you can do to take that away. There is no sin too great to remove you from the Father's love. This is the wonder of God's grace that while we were guilty of our sin and he is justified in his judgment, yet in his abundant mercy, God makes a way for us to be whiter than snow. We are made clean through Jesus. My hope today is that you would come to know Jesus if you haven't yet. And for the Christian in the room, my hope is that this would be a reminder for us and humility to worship him and thank him and live our lives in a way that reflect him. Truth number three, confession is key. So David here in this psalm, he is being completely transparent before God. He isn't trying to cover himself up uh, with other circumstances or excuses or justifications or others. He is being blatantly, bluntly, transparently honest before God. Honesty is key here. I think at times we feel we need to minimize our sin or reduce it. But David, he doesn't do this. David knows the problem is within his own heart and he doesn't want to bypass the brokenness within him. That's why he says in verse 16 and 17, you would not delight in sacrifices. Now, David is not demeaning the sacrificial system like it doesn't matter. David knows sacrifice is important. However, what David is saying is sacrifice is an outward ritual that reflects an inward reality. So David doesn't want to just perform religious ceremony and move on unchanged. And for us this morning, my hope is that that is the same for us, that we don't come and we sing songs, listen to a sermon and leave unchanged. My hope is that we don't bypass the brokenness within our hearts, that we humbly confess our sins to the Lord. We're all dealing with something. And my hope is that we walk out of here this morning transparently honest before God. Now here's the good news for us that 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us. We confess our sin in all confidence, knowing that he will forgive, knowing that he will forgive us, recognizing that the more we try to fix ourselves on our own, the more we realize how hopeless and helpless we are. But it is by God's grace, not our ability, that we are cleansed. Confession is key. What's more is confession, there is freedom. In confession, there is freedom. There is a weight lifted in confession. Open confession is good for the soul. Nothing brings more ease or life than frank acknowledgement of the sin that has caused so much sorrow. Such a declaration shows that we acknowledge our own condition and our need for God's kind and gentle response. You see, in confession, there is freedom. And I think to myself, what if the church did this? What if the church transparently confessed 
Think about the conflicts amongst us, amongst us that would resolve. Think about the marriages and families that would heal. Think about the frustrations that we would end if we just said, Lord, this is me. Honestly, transparently, before you, if we just confessed our sin, there is humility that comes with confession. And there is a response of graciousness and kindness that comes with our Father. Confession is wrapped in humility to say, I can't take this sin away. I need you. Where there is confession, there is freedom, there is relief. And the last truth, there is restoration. Restoration is the result. In verse 10, David says, create in me a new heart. So he doesn't want just a clean slate. He doesn't even want just a clean heart. He wants to be completely renovated. He wants a completely new heart, complete renovation. And what's so cool is that word create in the Hebrew is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter one for when God creates the world, when he creates the universe and for when he creates humanity. So in Jesus, we are a new creation. He completely renovates us. He completely restores us. Even beyond that, not only does he restore us, but he reestablishes our joy with him. That's why David prays, Restore to me the joy of our salvation. You see, we were made to find joy in the Father. And sin, what sin does, is it robs us of that joy. But through Jesus' great compassion, God is quick and gracious to reestablish that joy, to forgive us of our sins, and to restore us. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace. Let me tell you, concealment is the pathway to misery, but confession is the pathway to joy. In confession, there is restoration. There is reestablishment of joy. God completely renovates us. He completely forgives us. He restores us. He reestablishes our joy. And lastly, he uses us. Here is the hope that we have for the future. That one day the kingdom of God will be established here on this earth. And Jesus will be reigning as king. And this world will be shaped by Jesus's values. What Jesus values is what the world will value. And in this world, there will be no sin. There will be no temptation of sin. There will be no struggle with sin. There will be no punishment of sin. Sin will be vanquished from the earth. And until then, we as the church have an obligation to represent and reflect that future kingdom. And we do that by reflecting the king. He uses us to make his name known. Look at verse 12. David writes, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. See, in our restoration, once we were sinners and enemies of God, but now through Jesus, we are ambassadors and advocates of him. We make him known. He uses us to make his name known. We deal with our sin, we are restored, and we move forward to make him known because the reality is this world needs Jesus. 
This world is broken and it's dying and it needs Jesus. And he wants to use us, fallen people, people who have sinned and defied him. He wants to use us to make his name known. He did that with David. David had sinned so greatly, so severely. And yet God uses David to make his name known. So we reflect the king. We reflect Jesus. And it is true that we will still sin in this life. That is true. But the hope is that through the process of sanctification, we daily would become more and more like Jesus. We will sin still on this earth until that day we are in glory, in a glorified state with our Savior. But until then, through the process of sanctification, we are made more and more like him. So let's deal with our sin and let's move forward because we have kingdom business to attend to. This world needs Jesus. So as we reflect on this confession of David's, I want to point out three applications in light of this psalm that will help aid us in our fight against sin and aid us in our sanctification process to become more like Jesus. Because the ultimate fight we have against sin is to be more like him. So application point number one, seek sacrifice. Matthew 5, 29 says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Now the implication here is not to literally cut out your eye, but it is rather asking the question, what are we willing to sacrifice in order to guard ourselves from sin that appears so subtle? If I could illustrate this in my own life, I was introduced to pornography in high school. And this addiction followed me throughout college. And I remember one night my junior year, as I was up late, I decided to just go for a walk because I was struggling and I just needed to get out. And as I was walking, I saw a pond and I thought, don't think, just do. And I threw my phone into the pond. Now, in retrospect, that was littering. So don't do that. Um, However, my point is this, that I needed a season in my life where I just couldn't have an iPhone. I couldn't have a smartphone. And I'm not anti-smartphone. I have one now. But there was a season when I just couldn't have it. So my question for you is, can we sacrifice convenience for the sake of our holiness? Is there something in our life that we need to sacrifice? Is there something in our life that we need to sacrifice maybe just for a season? Or perhaps we need it out of our life altogether. Are we willing to take drastic measures to guard ourselves from sin that appears so subtle and harmless? Are we willing to inconvenience ourselves? Because if I think about it, David, if he knew the disastrous effects of his sin for the rest of his life, I think David would have rather gouged out his eyes than walk out and see her bathing and stop and stare. Future devastation could be caused by one look. So what are we willing to sacrifice? Application point number two, seek accountability. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. So when Nathan rebuked David, there's no doubt that Nathan's words wounded David. But these wounds moved David towards confession. And so what this looks like in my life is I meet with two guys every Thursday and I am, we are transparently honest with one another. And they have said things that have wounded me, but their wounds have moved me toward confession. And so that begs the question, who in your life do you know where it is okay to not be okay? 
What's more is Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 tells us that the struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness. So doesn't it make sense that we would want a community of believers surrounding us in light of this struggle? Doesn't it make sense that five is stronger than one? We need community. And I've seen pastors, I feel like at times this community, this accountability is only used in talks for high school and college. But I know pastors in our church, older pastors who have accountability because they recognize they need community. And so I believe accountability is for all generations. When the fight is hard, these two lighten the load. Application point number three, seek scripture. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. When the prospect of sin or temptation presents itself, the outcome is usually dependent upon the amount of time we have spent in scripture. Think about this. The ultimate fight we have against our sin is to become like the one who conquered and defeated sin. And how do we do that? It's by studying his word. When we study scripture, the author speaks. We learn more about Jesus and his character through scripture. It is so important for us to be invested in our relationship with Jesus through scripture. We cannot be in spiritual isolation. We must stay in the fight. And I find the moments in my life that I have forsaken scripture, I have forsaken accountability, prayer, and uh, sacrifice. I find these are the moments in my life that I seem to fall in sin the most. We've got to stay in the fight because this this world needs Jesus and we are his advocates. Now, if you're anything like me, and this is where I'll end, But if you're anything like me, you can hear a talk like this. You can read a psalm like this and you can feel an immense amount of guilt and shame. And when I start feeling guilt and shame from my past sin, what I do is I remember John chapter 21 when Peter had denied Jesus three times. But what Jesus did in light of Peter's sin is he sought out Peter. He forgave Peter. He dealt with Peter's sin and then he used Peter to start the church. And in the same way, there is no need for us to feel the weight of guilt and shame from our past sin. Because Jesus, he comes to us, he restores us, he forgives us, and then he uses us. God is gracious and there is no point for us to feel dirty or unclean because we have been made white as snow through Jesus. And so I want you to hear this. This will be the last thing I say. The real resolution of our guilt is the recognition of his grace. The real resolution of our guilt is the recognition of his grace. In light of this psalm, there is one to whom we can go and there is a solution to be found. Our need is crucial. We see that the solution is radical, but praise you, God, that your response is gentle and gracious. God is gracious. Let's pray. God, we praise you for being a God who has loved us so dearly that you moved heaven and earth to find us and to come after us. We praise you for being a God who saw us as enemies and yet through Jesus, you made a way for us to be your friend. You made a way for forgiveness. And so Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. We thank you for your great compassion and your great mercy. Father, I pray as we walk out today, we would know we are loved by you. We would know that there is no sin too great for you not to forgive. 
And so, God, we recognize you are a God who loves us. Would we feel your grace? Would we know your grace, Lord? So thank you, God, for being a good, good father and for Jesus whose blood has pardoned us. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, you guys have a great week, and we'll see you all here next week.